end. It is a cold, cold, yet sunny Valentine's Day here in Hogtown. And you are listening to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our beloved radio syndicates or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. I am David Hostetter. Stefan Hostetter's hair and general visage looks wonderful today. Sarah and Kester back in the booth. And do we have Lauren Latour on the line? Sure do. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, we are going to begin with uh, what we must begin with. Yes, we've been covering it for the, the, the this for the last four weeks, I believe, and it, it, it continues. Yes, so Canadian politicians are shaking in their boots as the government of British Columbia has been bracing for a potential shutdown today, brought on by Indigenous folks and supporters in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en First Nation in what is becoming a peaceful countrywide rebellion. Up to 30 government buildings could be disrupted or even shut down today in Victoria, B.C., as rallies, marches, occupations, and blockades have been popping up across the continent in the past few weeks to show Canadian governments that they can't continue to ignore Indigenous rights. On Monday, the 10th of February, the RCMP completed its heavily armed sweep of a piece of Wet'suwet'en land whose inhabitants were threatening the swift construction of Coastal Gas Link's liquid natural gas pipeline, arresting the final holdouts at the Unistoden Village and Healing Center, including Frida Hewson, Carla Tate, and Brenda Mitchell. Dr. Carla Tate has a PhD in, in clinical psychology and had been putting her efforts into the Healing Center. She told Amanda Follett Hosgood for the Tai on the evening prior to the final arrests, quote, We've always considered the land itself healing, because living on the land and drawing your water directly from living water sources, all these things strengthen a connection to the living spirit of all things. When you experience being a small part of that greater life force, it's very difficult to feel alone or destitute or helpless, which are some of the precursors to mental health struggles. We have a lot of history and place significance in the area. There's a lot of meaning here for us. Our ancestors have lived here for millennia. The company's plans will destroy this river. We have a healing center here, and there are a lot of things that are connected to the land in our programming. We know what is at stake here, and the stakes are too high for us to just let go. This is my home. It's not a protest camp. The healing center took us over a year and about a million dollars to build. They're coming to invade my home. And so we did, with 21 arrests and 15 charges placed in Gidimdan territory alone, according to Gidimdan clan uh, member Molly Wickham. After militarized tactical units with upwards of 60 members wielded assault rifles and dogs against unarmed civilians. The matriarchs of the Unistotin have uh, since been released, and the Canadian tactical teams have been withdrawn, but the RCMP are still heavily present on Wet'suwet'en land. There were also 14 people arrested in solidarity at the Delta port south of Vancouver on that same Monday morning who had managed to shut down the port for 36 hours and 43 arrests at the port of Vancouver, which was successfully occupied and shut down for several days. Countless similar actions have been happening all over the country, with major intersections, bridges, and rail lines being shut down or disrupted across the country for days on end, with over 157 passenger trains cancelled, over 24,000 travelers affected, and numerous freight trains delayed. There are multiple Mohawk blockades of rail lines still happening in Ontario, one group having been there for a week now majorly disrupting one of Canada's busiest rail corridors and vowing not to leave until the RCMP have left Wet'suwet'en territory. 
There have also been occupations of banks and political offices in multiple provinces, including the Prime Minister's office and a days-long occupation of BC legislature, which was able to prevent government officials from entering the building earlier in the week and cause the government to cancel its ceremonial celebration of the BC government's throne speech that was happening at the same time. A new rail blockade went up outside of Winnipeg yesterday in negative 20, de uh, negative 20 degrees Celsius weather. As, uh, and as of yesterday, Indigenous youth had been occupying the Minister of Justice's office in Ottawa for three days straight. Picket lines were set up to block Deputy PM Christia Freeland from a meeting in, city, in uh, Halifax City Hall. The Granville Bridge in Vancouver was shut down, and so on and so forth throughout the country. Canadian embassies and consulates are also being shut down in London, Washington, the Bay Area, and New Zealand. So the idea that these protesters can shut down Canada is no longer seeming like an idle threat. Regarding the blockade of BC legislature ahead of the throne speech this week, a reporter for Global News pointed out that it was clearly a fluid situation. If you are in Toronto, there will be the 15th annual strawberry ceremony from 12.30 to 1.30 held outside the police headquarters at College and Bay to honor the women, girls, trans, and two-spirit people who have died violent deaths. Tomorrow there will be an action starting at 10.10 a.m. sharp at Spadina in Bloor to demand the RCMP leave Wet'suwet'en land. And on Family Day, there will be a family-friendly march on Monday the 17th at Christie Pitts at 2 p.m. So that's 10 a.m. at Spadina and Bloor on the 15th in Toronto and 2 p.m. at Christie Pitts on the 17th. Yeah, so uh, first got to go to Lauren to you first. Yeah, um, it's been, it's been a, it's been a jam-packed couple of weeks, um, and this week has been truly incredible to see all of the ways in which people are rising up in solidarity and support with, with Indigenous peoples and, and, and looking to them for leadership and sort of heeding the words of these of these water and land protectors. Um, there was something, I've, I, there's been so much on social media the last the last couple of days and, and weeks especially, but something that I've, I've seen sort of retweeted and shared over and over is a graphic um, talking about how with, with all of these young people proclaiming, well, with all these Indigenous young people proclaiming that reconciliation is dead, that, like, we've entered a new era, you can't go back from from sort of the harm that's been caused this last week and the ways in which these, these relationships with with not only the people of Wet'suwet'en, but with young Indigenous people across the country as they're seeing this injustice carried out, like, like this can't be reversed. And I'm inclined to think that's true, um, because this is a whole new generation that obviously they're they're, they're no stranger to the injustices that have been carried out on Indigenous peoples, but, like, probably weren't alive during the Oka crisis. Maybe haven't sort of, maybe, maybe they weren't living out east during sort of the, the occupations in Kent County and, and El Sepulchdog around, around anti-fracking. Like, this might be kind of one of their first experiences seeing something like this happening in real time. Something like this that is sort of, uh, excuse the phrase, like, caught like wildfire across the country. And, and I'm inclined to think that this is going to go down in history as one of those pivotal moments when the Canadian government had so much power to do good and to live up to the expectations that they've set for themselves through things like the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission and, and through uh, tossing around language related to UNDRIP and free prior informed consent. And in all of the ways that they've failed to live up to that language and abused it, they've shattered relationships like with, with, with a new generation of Indigenous young people that, that otherwise could have been different than it than it has been up until now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the seeming inability uh, for, for not just politicians, but so much of the sort of legacy media uh, to, to understand 
or to even do basic sort of, you know, to to approach the situation in the in in a way that actually matches what the conversation it, it, people are trying to have is right. There's there's this level mm-hmm. of which so many of the of the commentators in our in our quote unquote papers of note or whatever you want to call it uh, seem to seem to be obsessed with this idea that you know that oh these these protests are are blocking my ability to get to work today and ha- that is the and that somehow is the is the end all be all of 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 terribleness, basically, you know, like the idea that uh, that Serendist, uh, if you're on Twitter, Serendist shared the uh, just just commented a post about uh, from National Newswatch on, on John Envision's basically going on about how these protests, you know, the right to protest stops when you start inconveniencing people, and that's when protests begin. That's the beginning of protests. That's how protests work. Yeah, you missed, I'm sorry to cut in, but you missed the best part of the tweet. said, uh, John Iverson, <laughs> you're uh, careful, John, your fascism is showing. Right. It's really amazing just how out of, how easily these people just flip right to shoot him. Yeah, well, yeah. well, and like, and, and, and what's and what's concerning to me, and I, I should, I should, I should, I should state that it was uh, that you know that there's a distinct difference between protests and protectors, and that is actually a very important language conversation that should be had as well. Um, and so I was using sort of his language when saying that the idea in the current protests that are currently going on. Um, but I do think that, but there is this level of which, uh, of which the the belittling of. Um, uh, of of these actions by by commentators is actively dangerous. You know, there was someone who tr- literally drove through uh, a, a a set of people who are on uh, who are blocking the, a, a road, and I believe is Alberta this week. You know, and that's straight up. That's attempt to harm. You know, how is that different than what we saw in Charlottetown? Uh, you know, with, with you know, with the white supremacist running other people over. This, it's this. It, just because it didn't hit anyone does not make that action any less violent. And and yet, you're, what you're hearing over and over again from so many of these commentators is this idea that actually the real problem are the people who are peacefully de- demonstrating, which is fundamentally understood as a part of the right to live in uh, the, the rights that are given by the rule of law. You you know, like you can't keep claiming rule of law, and then as soon as it becomes annoying to you, decide to switch tactics, which is exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. No, and and sort of further to that, so the the point, especially that you were making about sort of how traditional media is covering this. Obviously, I, I struggle to like sort of make this wide sweeping claim. They never do a fantastic job, but I've sort of really noticed it the last couple of days. Um, especially this morning, I was listening to CBC, and they were talking to passengers who have been inconvenienced as a result of the rail line being shut down and all these trains being being canceled and, and postponed. And and sort of what I realized and what was making me really upset when they were talking to these via rail um, either passengers and employees is that via rail isn't telling people beforehand that they're that they're trains have been canceled, despite the fact that they've been canceled now for days. So you're getting people coming to their station to get their train. VOL has not told them in advance that it has been canceled. And of course, they're rightfully upset. And instead of VOL saying, yes, well, the Canadian government isn't living up to its expectations and its promises, they're blaming these these land protectors. And it's like, that's that is something so simple that Via Rail and media could do to manage expectations of these of these angry white people who are pissed off because they can't get their train to Toronto or whatever. And, and not that I'm sort of diminishing the experiences of those people who I'm sure need to get to Toronto for any number of reasons. But, but yeah, the, the, the storytelling that not only media, but, but that we're all sort of perpetrating and continuing to, to pit these indigenous peoples as, as the land protectors and protesters who are inconveniencing the rest of us 
is doing such a disservice to the reality of this situation. Yeah, totally, and, and and it's and and and, that, and that's the part of it. And there's this, there's this bit, there's this belief. It seems like that that as long as they keep repeating their own narratives, they can control the story. And 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 what's interesting is watching that sort of slowly be undermined by by people who are actually trying to cover. You know, in the middle section of the show, we're going to get into some of the actual conversations around around why you know coastal gasoline going on and on about how the fact that the band council, uh, you know, support voters for this is not the mm. whole story. Um, and and yet they're and yet you know Trudeau and all these other people are coming out directly stating over and over again that like that they are that we are the country of rule of law and it's like sure but you are you are the ones who are ignoring like different parts of law which we'll get to in a second but uh, we I want to get to some of the comments that we're hearing from uh, political leaders so back to Dave. Okay, so Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is of the incredibly unseasoned and extremely insulting opinion that these actions have been initiated by urban environmentalists, whom he labels eco-colonialists, projecting their fringe political beliefs on poor indigenous communities who need the pipeline jobs to save their youth from addiction. Jason Kenney therefore thinks that the Canadian state should congratulate itself for saving indigenous people from its own crimes, as if pipeline jobs were the solution to genocide so much so that they should be forced upon people at gunpoint. And he must also actually believe that there is a class of so-called urban environmentalists who can just uh, convince indigenous people of stuff. But beyond this implicit racism, Kenny also stated that the coastal gas link pipeline is in fact uh, the most important climate action Canada can take because it will allow countries like China to replace their coal with our natural gas. He said, quote, this is a dress rehearsal for illegal protests on pretty much any major project. If these folks were actually concerned about CO2 emissions, they would be calling for the acceleration of the coastal gasoline project, not trying to shut down our economy, commuters, people trying to get to work, because they're opposed to Canada playing a role in the essential conversion of thermal coal to natural gas. He added, quote, I think it's about time that our police services demonstrated that this is a country that respects the rule of law, allowing people to completely destabilize the lives of tens of thousands of people, costing all of us uh, untold costs on our economy by shutting down ports and bridges and highways and railways in opposition to the expressed democratic wishes of First Nations. is outrageous and it has to end. BC Premier John Horgan said of the blockade of BC legislature this week, quote, I respect people's right to speak to power and to assemble peacefully at the legislature, but yesterday was not like other days. Yesterday was a day when people were denied access to their workplace, not because of their political views, but because they were seen as symbols of government. That was unacceptable. Peaceful demonstration, a peaceful demonstration is fundamental to our success as a democracy. But to have a group of people say to others, you are illegitimate, you are not allowed in here, you are somehow a sellout to the values of Canadians, is just plain wrong. I heard shut down Canada through my window a few times. That's not supported by me, and that's not supported by Canadians. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said, quote, We recognize the important democratic right, and we will always defend it, of peaceful protest. This is an important part of our democracy in Canada. But we're also a country of the rule of law, and we need to make sure that those laws are respected. That is why I'm encouraging all parties to dialogue to resolve this as quickly as possible. An Unistoten Solidarity Brigade email said this week, quote, These arrests don't intimidate us. Police enforcement doesn't intimidate us. Colonial courts don't intimidate us. Men in suits and their money don't intimidate us. We are still here. We will always be here. This is not over. And Gidim Dan clan member Molly Wickham said on the 12th, quote, We have to address the fact that people can shut down Canada. 
that indigenous people have had enough. They recognize the injustice. Our allies have had enough. They recognize the violence and the genocide that's happening on our territories right now in 2020, and they're willing to stand. And they're not willing to stand for it. And we have the ability, as indigenous peoples of this land all over Turtle Island, to shut down critical infrastructure and put an end to business as usual in this country. Now, it does appear that the BC government, either John Horgan or a senior member of his cabinet, will soon be meeting with the hereditary chiefs, who have also just launched a climate court challenge of the pipeline. Yeah, and so this strikes me as, um, th this is what I sort of was getting at when I was talking about the way that they seem to believe that they can control the actual conversation. You know, here is here is Jason Kenney basically claiming that what's going on here is a extensive, uh, you know, is, is, is being led by, by environmentalists and, it, and it completely ignoring the quite clear and very directly stated reasons why this is happening and why everyone is, do like, it, what's interesting is that there is not, there is really not been a, 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 a big climate link in the conversations. Like, yes, they're using climate change as a way to propose it in the courts right now, but the but the protests themselves are distinctly related to the fact that this is basically, you know, a Canadian invasion of a nation-to-nation -nation territory that has not been consulted. Like that has been very clearly the statement and the reasons why people are doing this. And it, Kenny's basically realized that he—that's not a great take look to be, be against. And so he's instead decided to sort of shift blame onto onto the idea that this is an environmentalist argument and that this is what's going on. You know, um, even like even if this was if this was a different scenario, even if the say was you know was. Was a Trans Mountain pipeline? Um, there, the, that conversation has been much more steeped in, in in a climate conversation than than this one ever has been, uh, at least in at least in the protests that are currently ongoing, and and then Horgan seems trapped in the exact in, in a very similar uh, weird worldview when you know when he's like these aren't the like like. like his continued use of Canadians in this context is, is is seems so either willfully ignorant or. Uh, or intentionally uh, obf obfuscational. That's almost certainly not a word. Um, <laughs> but but you know, it's like the, the the literally the argument here is whose laws govern this land. And so to be like this is not what Canada is is actually not necessarily the argument that even that, that even the Wet'suwet'en Hurdy uh, Chiefs would would quibble with. Their point is you're right. This is not what we're not we're not here to argue. We're here to argue that this is our land, and so our laws are, need to have are, 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 you know are, are need to be understood and, and taken place in this conversation. And so it's 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 very much like. Uh, again, I don't. I don't want to put. Uh, I don't want to put words in uh, in his mouth in the sense that he is intentionally sort of trying to you know w wash over this with Canadianness. But it, it strikes me as particularly odd to use this argument in this larger case. Uh, but Lauren, I want to go to you. Yeah, I guess like I think because I, I know we're wrapping up on time here, but I, I just hope that Justin Trudeau and Jason Kenney and and John Horgan, who frankly, at this point, should, should understand that he's not going to be reelected, considering how the damage he's done with the people who elected him. But, um, I, I mean, what's what, like, this isn't going anywhere. Not only is this not going anywhere, we're hearing rumors that a decision on, on tech is potentially coming down the pike next week. And and, and we're also hearing that, that the TMX fight is going to get fired up again soon. So it's like, these conversations are going to continue to happen. And if the liberal government continues to toe this line... Um, this this violent line and continue to, to back up this kind of extractivist mindset. It's it's not going to get any easier for them. I, I don't I don't I really don't know what they think the outcome is going to be if they continue to to stake themselves in this battle this way. 
because these conversations are going to continue to happen and people are going to continue to be mad. You can't put Pandora's box back together after it's been opened like this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's not a, you know, there's a way to have the actual conversation that these hereditaries are trying to to engage in, which is, you know, a conversation about what our laws state about whose laws govern this land. And again, we'll, after the break, we're going to sort of dive into that a little bit. Uh, but that's, but it, it seems very intentional that none of the the people currently in power are willing to uh, even under begin to 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 have that conversation it, you know it, it's interesting that like you know the, the ruling again the ruling was in 1997 we've had 15 20 years to sort this out and uh, they I, I it would be it would be very it'd be very surprising to me if they did not know this was coming you know like mm-hmm. it, like it, 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 like i would be I, I give them the benefit of the doubt of that they are were aware that this was going to be a disagreement uh i think the the Watsut and Hardishis have made themselves pretty clear on this issue over the past few years and so to now be like suddenly surprised by this crisis you made this crisis you allowed this crisis to foment and now you are acting as if people responding in as if it is a crisis is unreasonable and it's like you you set this up to happen exactly how this happened and and that to me is the part that sort of is particularly disingenuous you know even if horgan you know was not the you know we're not the liberal party who sort of got us you know not you were in power for so much longer in bc you know he when he came in had to at least be briefed on this fact that this could go this way and mm-hmm. and and the fact that they're all sort of ignoring that conversation just seems ridiculous yeah so so when justin trudeau besieges besieges people to to resolve this conflict as soon as possible it's like well justin you have the power to do that you could resolve it you could pull the RCMP off. You could tell Coastal Gaslink that this project isn't happening anymore. And you're choosing not to. You're choosing to continue to invade sovereign territory. And this is what happens when you wage war on people, on a sovereign nation. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it, and it, it does, it does, yeah. Sorry, we're we're gonna get to the to the to sort of the, the things of the next one. But uh, so before we go to break, uh, any last thoughts, Lauren? And then uh, then we'll come back. Yeah, I guess just to remind us of something that that, uh, David mentioned at the top of the show. Um, This is a day that we would normally take out to honor missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, There are actions and vigils taking place in cities all over, um, all throughout the weekend, not only today, but, but carrying through. So if you have time to go out to one of those vigils or one of those ceremonies, or rallies, um, or even just to take some time to to read the report on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. That, that today is a really really good day to do that. Yeah, and, and there is one in Toronto, which will uh, which is happening, I think, at twelve thirty. Twelve thirty, yeah. College and Bay. Yeah. Uh, so thank you much, so much, Lauren. We'll go to our music break right now, uh, and then we'll come back uh, because Emma McIntosh has joined us, uh, and from National Observer, and we'll talk about uh, just all the laws related to this and and the misinformation that is flowing quite freely. It seems. Let's go to music break. Uh, and f- forgive me, it's just really important as we pass by. This whole thing, and I've been on, I want to be fair, I've been on Justin Trudeau about it too. This whole thing of politicians dividing people into Canadians, there's an implication there that people who disagree with me are not Canadian. That is a stone's throw from calling people vermin. It goes down a very dangerous path. And I, we need all politicians, including Justin Trudeau, to stop trying to regulate and police who and is and is not Canadian. Very dangerous has to stop. Uh, on that note, uh, this is the band credited with bringing rock and roll to Nunavut. This is Sikamut.
The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. And uh, we are joined by Emma McIntosh again of the National Observer now. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me back. And uh, we're going to continue talking about the... um, Rebellion happening across Canada in, in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en. And now talking about the laws around uh, indigenous land, how they've evolved over the past uh, several decades. So um, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, I'm going to quote Jason Kenney again. He is claiming that the countrywide protests, uh, he's claiming that it is, uh, quote, certainly not about indigenous rights, because every one of the 20 elected First Nations councils along the Coastal GasLink route, following extensive consultations with their grassroots members, support the project. So this is not about indigenous people, and it's not about carbon emissions. It's about a hard left ideology that is frankly opposed to the entire industrial economy. And John Horgan is arguing, quote, there's 204 Indian Act nations in British Columbia. Uh, the vast majority of those nations, whether they are assembled under the Indian Act or under their own uh, traditional ways, are anxious to have the prosperity that other British Columbians have experienced over the past uh, 150 years. That overwhelming majority is my focus. I absolutely understand that the, uh, the discontent and disappointment of some but I can't let that get in the way of moving forward on what I believe is the be- in the best interests of British Columbia in the long term. The Vancouver Sun quotes uh, interim Green Party leader Adam Olson, a member of the Sartlip First Nation, as responding to Horgan by saying, quote, The issues that the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs have raised are not new. Government has been well aware of the existing long-standing and unresolved matters relating to rights and title in the area. Yet in spite of this, the NDP prioritized the, fin- the financial regime, knowing full well that there was work to be done in the Wet'suwet'en territory. Indeed, the idea that the project is needed to help indigenous people would be contested by those running the Unistoten Healing Center, who have been improving people's lives since 2010 by giving them community and a connection to the land, rather than high-paying construction jobs. But even if that weren't the case, the idea that that state-enforced industrial development is the answer to all our problems has always been used to silence indigenous dissent, especially after the 1997 Delgamuk decision, which, after a 14-year legal process initiated by the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en, saw the Supreme Court of Canada rule that indigenous oral history proved that 58,000 hectares of Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en land still fell under the authority of traditional governance, namely the hereditary chiefs, and not the band councils, and not any Canadian government. That decision, however, remains suggestive rather than binding, since the courts also ruled that the precise territory in question had yet to be defined. The Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en, however, has uh, have had just fought a 14-year-long legal battle and did not have the resources to begin another one. Then in 2004, the Supreme Court ruled that a First Nation does not have to prove its title in court for it to be recognized, meaning that in lieu of a treaty, the lands still belong to its indigenous inhabitants. Then in 2014, the spirit of the Delgamuk case was reaffirmed when the Supreme Court of Canada ruled in favor of the Tsilkotan First Nation in BC, ruling that Canada cannot make unilateral decisions on First Nations land. 
Prior to the 97 Delgamuk decision, the Canadian state simply acted like there was no such thing as First Nations rights and title, and after the decision, the standard became these vague consultation processes that still don't give First Nations a right to say no, which is what we see today in all these pipeline cases. In addition, Industry, in concert with the state, began immediately trying to undermine the Delgamuk decision in the 90s by trying to coerce First Nations in BC to sign treaties that would give away their decision-making power, newly implied by Canadian courts. In one instance, provincial treaty negotiators in BC actually tried to convince the federal government to predicate residential school reparations on the signing of a treaty. They therefore wanted to withhold money for survivors of residential schools, which were the hideous instruments of our very real genocide, on the requirement that the recipients give away their right to negotiate about what happens on their land. Also, it often happens that when indigenous people in BC inform government officials of the meaning of the Delgamuk decision, they immediately get sent different government officials to deal with. So because we could not completely wipe out indigenous memory, First Nations traditional governance structures in some places remain intact alongside the band councils officially recognized by Canada. The Canadian courts ruled that the, that the traditional laws of indigenous peoples still applied, but the Canadian state has ignored this and continued to go through the band council system that was set up by Canada, and we have, clearly, uh, cle we have cleverly used this disconnect between traditional systems and the ones we imposed to sow discord amongst communities. Now our courts have recognized that those traditional structures still hold. What's more, the elected band councils were only meant to have jurisdiction over the tiny reserves and not over the swaths of land uh, that were never given up in any treaty. Thus our courts have recognized that the hereditary chiefs hold, hold jurisdiction over massive areas of land, including the territory that is currently being bulldozed by coastal gaslink. And last fall, British Columbia officially embraced the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP, under John Horgan, who has been grandstanding about Indigenous rights for quite a while, but who hasn't recognized the implications of UNDRIP for the Coastal GasLink pipeline. This is because UNDRIP states explicitly that First Nations have the right to self-governance and self-determination, and that they have the right to, to give free, prior, and informed consent before we go in and start developing stuff on their land. Horgan even said last fall, quote, I think the patience of indigenous communities has been well demonstrated over the 200 years of colonial activity here in British Columbia and across Canada. I'm sure I'll get some advice from elders and others about how we proceed in the new year. And here we are in the new year, in the midst of a nationwide rebellion against Canadian economic and political infrastructure, because Horgan and Trudeau, Trudeau having pledged to abolish the Indian Act, have failed to take seriously what they promised over and over to take seriously. And finally, Doug Call, who is now charged with overseeing BC's UNDRIP legislation, was himself one of the bureaucrats who began undermining the, Del the Delgamuk decision less than a week after it was made. Yeah, so this is this is one of the things where why I think you often will see these different people go out and stay like this is you know this is this is a small group of people who don't actually have the rights and, and there's de the democratic uh, you know democratic band council decided that it was okay and so we can move forward and it creates this and it it, it muddles the waters enough that I think allows. Uh, allows those in power to, to try to control the narrative as much as possible. I think that's sort of what we're seeing, um, at least a little bit. And and so, um, Emma, you you sort of wrote a thing uh, or a piece. What I'm calling a thing. Okay. You wrote a piece <laughs> uh, about the importance of the fact that this land is unseated and what unseated means. Um, like uh, and and in the fact that the the the, the way that the 
the, the way that that sort of interacts with, to, to my understanding, the what 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 the bound council actually has control over, and what the heritage have control over, and, and how that sort of legal legal difficulties comes back and forth. Yeah, yeah. So, like on a very basic level, um, the elected councils are a colonial construct, right? They're created by the Indian Act. They are really meant to govern over reserve lands only. That that's kind of the intent. They're supported by federal government money, and ultimately that's who they're accountable to. Um, and this gets tricky because like, this is where people have a lot of trouble processing it because they're like, but democracy is good. So elected representatives are good. Um, and it's kind of like, that's not really our decision right. to make that that's not like our call. If like a, if a culture is going by its traditional hereditary structure and it, it also gets lost that, um, it, like hereditary doesn't mean without accountability. Mm-hmm. Like people are imagining like the Queen of England, like a, adapted to like a, a first nation in North America. That's not actually how it works. Like the community can strip hereditary chiefs of their titles, which they have done for people who supported the coastal gas link. Right. So like it, it's not like there's no measure of accountability here. It's not like there's no thought behind it. It worked for thousands of years. And if they want that, it's a, an ethical question whether it's, our right to tell them what they want. Well, yeah, and I think this is th- this is the part of it that gets that that sort of gets me is that this idea that we are there is a that there's no question this is not a complicated in intra and intra nation question of 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 you know of the Wet'suwet'en people and, and what they what the group of them actually you know would want basically. But I but I think that what's clear is with with all, what's, it's interesting is that what's clear in Canadian law. <laughs> Is that we are in we, that that there is a requirement to uh, to um, appreciate and respond to the 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 Wet'suwet'en law about that land? Like we, the Canadian law in 1987, and, and 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 especially if you're actually considering UNDRIP, have have been relatively clear um, uh, that. That the, that the, that Canada does not necessarily have jurisdiction over this land. Like it is literally like if it's what's interesting is this rule of law argument. Seems to me seems to me basically with comes with sort of this veneer behind it. And again, this is a sort of of like what we mean by law and order is that basically things stay the same. And it, it, like 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 the idea that the idea that there could be laws in place in Canada that would allow for other laws, you know, like that would allow for other laws to supersede sort of the current paradigm, seems to break people's brains in a way. And yet we keep talking about law and order as if as if it is as if as if it's clear cut in this in this case. And it and it, and, it ver- and when you ask lawyers, they're they're the ones who are actually pulling people back and being like, well, if you actually read this, that's not actually what's happening here. And and, and yet it and yet everyone sort of like. I think we've just created this weird idea of law and order really just meaning people should stop protesting and we should let people do, like, in corporations should continue. It's, it's, sort a, of it's a euphemism for you have to do what I say or I'll put law put you in jail. It's it's the it's the rhetoric of fascism. Well, it's, it's, it's authoritarianism. It's, it's law and order is always said by the people who are interested in which laws are being ordered around. Yeah, and that's it, right? There's, there's a, it's consistently an appeal to power in some way. Um, but I'm curious. Like you've been covering this for say, you know, 
you know, last this last few weeks. And I'm wondering if there's uh, anything else that sort of stands out in you. You said you had mentioned previously that there's a, a fair amount of disinformation coming through, and I think that's partially what we're seeing with this sort of scattershot of news. Uh, is all the different ways disinformation is is is, is sort of perpetuating our the conversation. Sure, yeah. So um, both Coastal Gaslink and Canada Action, which is this like pro-oil social media advocacy group that seems to have a lot of money, wonder where it comes from. <laughs> um, they both have been flooding social media with these ads. And they're all ads where it's like, meet Edward, he's Wet'suwet'en, and like he really likes Coastal Gaslink. Let's hear his voice. Or it'll be like, this is Helen, and she's a hereditary chief. And she likes Coastal Gaslink. But when you start like talking to people who are actually part of the community, they're like, oh, I've never seen Edward in my life. Or like, um, yeah, Helen like was something, but like she she does not represent us. Like she called herself a hereditary chief mm. is what one of the other, like one of the, the legitimate hereditary chiefs said. And so... Um, but those little things muddy the waters just a little bit. And when it's already so fraught and so technical to understand this, it's enough, right? Like, I, I have people who are quite well-meaning um, reaching out to me, like, in my Twitter mentions or in my inbox going, well, I've seen videos of hereditary chiefs saying that they support it, so how do you reconcile that, right? And the average person doesn't have the time to sort through it. It doesn't have the time to, to have the conversation that we're having right now. And it seems to work. Yeah, and then and then you get something like you know the you get something like the Horgan says if you lift a blockade then then we'll have a conversation and then you know and basically the goal is can I get keep this going long enough that I can then just do what I want and then everyone will forget about it like that sort of feels like what the where where what what the hope is because there does not seem to be any any real conversation about about what what this would actually solve. Like, like, to me, if you were going to be serious about solving this, you would have months or years ago <laughs> set up a, you know, facilitated a way to, to actually have this, allow for this conversation to exist at a time where you aren't basically, you know, where you, there are not snipers pointing guns at people. Like, there's no version of a nation-nation conversation that can be held in any reasonable way if you are literally pointing guns at one half of them. But they're not thinking of it as a nation-to-nation -nation relationship, which right. is exactly the problem, right? right. Like, um, even this whole thing where it's like, well, you know, like all these elected councils like it. Think about if we were talking about governments. Think about if we were running a pipeline. This would be like so nonsensical. But just let's, let's say we're running one through every single EU nation, just like zigzagging around. <laughs> if I was going to say England, but never mind. Um, <laughs> but if, if literally any country in the EU says they don't want it, then yeah. that country doesn't want it. Find a different route. And Coastal Gaslink has had, you know, the, the hereditary chiefs have made suggestions for places the pipeline could run that would not be as horrible on their end. And the company hasn't taken up those suggestions. Yeah, and, and that's to me the thing. It's like, it's like what the, the, you're, you've literally offered a way to not cause this crisis and you decided it was maybe too expensive. You know, like like if, 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 if all of the people who are yelling at how much money the economy is being cost, uh, cost Canadian right now realize that Coastal Gaslink basically just decided that it didn't feel like 
spending an extra X amount of money to go around this issue, like which was offered to them. Like the idea that it's somehow the protesters costing money, not this company that has decided it wanted to do, fundamentally reframes the conversation. And yet, it, it does not seem like we're even close to having that conversation, right? It seems we're entirely separate from the conversation. I, I like the idea, the fact that you almost use the UK because <laughs> there is a level of this, like you know, to go on. You know, it, the fact that Brexit could occur and people were like, actually, we want our own laws to govern ourselves, and everyone's and and, and you probably have the same people. You know, you have you have the, the similar right wing commentators coming out and supporting that, and then having you know people in our own nation say basically the same thing that we want our laws to govern our lands, uh, and that's that suddenly is somehow deeply un, uh, unreasonable. Speaks to you know the, where colonialism. You know, like I love that the Britain could the, the Britain the. The, the kings of colonialism decided that at the moment that they might have to cede any power to a, to a foreign entity decided that they didn't want to. It just seems very, very rare drip. Um, but uh, we are, we're, we're coming, we're doing, we do have one more story, but it's different, so I want to go on to the next break. But I, I'm, I'm curious if there's anything, like anything else that you've, like, and you've been covering this for quite some time now, you've been talking to people on the ground, what has struck out to you? What is the thing that you sort of feel like it's not getting, it's not breaking through maybe international conversation or that, that people should keep in mind? I think just the level to which the, the mindset is how much can we get away with, mm. like even with the rule of law thing, right? Um, I think the Supreme Court was pretty clear about its intent, but they don't have to follow that, so they're not. Or the in constant and honestly very terrifying infringements on press freedom that happened during the raids. My One of my pals got thrown in the back of a van and driven to a parking lot. Like that's not how we treat journalists in this country, but... In the moment, they know that people have to obey them and people have to do it, and maybe they'll face consequences after, but they're sure going to have stopped someone from taking a video of them arresting someone through the smash window of a truck. Right. And, and I think that that's something that we need to all be very aware of and think about whether that's what we want to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's an excellent little image of, of, of how often – it does feel like when the the reason why I reason why it is advantageous to power to let these things hit this level of crises is that people inherently want crises to stop, and so they are willing to give a fair amount of their control over or allow for a fair amount of militarization. You know, you saw it with the G20 protests here in Toronto, right? The mo suddenly there's a you can create this idea of a threat and then use that to justify your ex your, your extreme levels of, of of power. You know, and like if they were arresting. If they were arresting a grandmother uh, in the middle of downtown Toronto with five snipers, uh, you know, surrounding them uh, and pulling them out of a car window, I think people would have a slightly different reaction. But you can get away with it if it's far away and you and you don't have the press there because you're able to block them. And there's stories even now about about different. Um, Different reporters being blocked from covering these blockades, even uh, for you know from you know, from similar things. Uh, and again, it's yeah, it's like, are we willing as a society to allow this type of of, of rejection uh, or pushing out of of of, of legitimate and of, like the land practice alone, the media. Right, like these are people who are just trying to cover what's actually happening to ensure we know what's it is, and you know, and there's reports for RCMP blocking off their their names and all the information that they have, so you couldn't report on who was doing what. Right, it's this it's this ongoing idea of like you can't identify who we are, we are legion, <laughs> and it's and it's and it's allowing that to continue is, is very dangerous. Um, but let's go to a music break because we have one more story you want to get to that is uh, related but not directly related to Canada. So we'll go to a music break and come right back. Na, na, na. 
And welcome back to the Green Majority on CAUT 89.5 FM. Um, we're going to move now uh, into uh, a discussion about another indigenous leader uh, threatened by Canadian interests um, by the name of Evo Morales in Bolivia, who has been called the last hero of the Latin American left. This is because he was a socialist president of Bolivia who had managed to quadruple the size of the Bolivian economy while taking resource control back from transnational corporations and putting that money into social programs that lifted people out of poverty. He was finally deposed in a military coup last fall. We mention this because of the major role Bolivian lithium deposits played in the coup, which is a substance central to building batteries for electric vehicles, and of which Bolivia claims to have 70% of the world's reserves. As Vijay Prashad writes for Our Common Dreams, quote, Before he left, Morales had been involved in a long project to bring economic and social democracy to his long-exploited country. It is important to recall that Bolivia has suffered a series of coups, often conducted by the military and the oligarchy on behalf of transnational mining companies. Initially, these were tin firms, but tin is no longer the main target in Bolivia. The main target is its massive deposits of lithium, crucial for the electric car. And yet, while no one disputes that the, uh, he brought major positive changes to Bolivia and improved the stock of Amerindian indigenous people there, there are those even on the left, like former Brazilian President Lula da Silva, who argue that Morales should not have tried to seek a fourth term. There are also those who argue that his priorities changed over the years, when he had to begin relying on the political support of people who didn't want to improve the lot of their fellow countrymen, but to amplify their own personal pleasures. There was a left-wing student protester killed in 2018 by the police, and some of his electoral base abandoned him and accused him of using police repression against the indigenous youth that brought him to power. He claims that the young people turned against him, uh, turning against him do not understand the struggles his generation undertook against international neoliberalism and have huge expectations unencumbered by experience, such that he was turned against by the very middle class that he had created. He admits that he may have made a mistake in trying for a fourth term rather than electing someone else to run as the head of his party, the Movement for Socialism, or MAS, in his stead. But if so, then it was a mistake demanded of him by the social movements who had gained such hope and steam over the years and who wanted him to continue building social programs for the people. Indeed, he presided over the longest presidency ever known in Bolivia, which provided much-needed political stability, since in years previous, uh, governed by right-wing parties, if not dictatorships, presidents kept coming and going one after the other. But Evo, on a left-wing agenda, took back local control over their resources, connected rich and poor areas with cable cars, increased GDP fourfold, and cut poverty in half. He also argues that his government prevented countless coups during his administration. In terms of the, of the controversy over his intended fourth term, he had originally lost a referendum in 2016 in which he sought permission to run for that fourth term, but then the question was taken to a supreme tribunal which ruled that nobody could, term it presidential, nobody could limit presidential terms. The Organization of American States then said it was okay for him to run again, but then also accused him of fraud after he won the election on October 20th. Many experts from American universities then demanded the OAS retract that statement since they said there was, in fact, no fraud. 
Morales told Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept that he now believes the Organization of American States is a tool of the U.S. State Department and expects the U.S. was involved in the recent coup, as they were in many previous failed coups related to him denouncing the role of the CIA in the region and kicking out the U.S. ambassador. Morales also, after nationalizing resources and demanding that, in, uh, that national companies be equal partners in any deals, was unable to make a deal with any U.S. companies on lithium, and so he made contracts with Europe and Asia, namely China and Germany. Morales was also told by an American ex-ambassador that Bolivia could not have relations with Cuba, Venezuela, or Iran. And now there is a new president, congratulated and cheered on by the U.S., who has promised to give a military base back to the U.S., and who has very little popular support, only representing currently 4% of the country. The people against Morales tend to be of the whiter European Christian heritage, with links to people who violently attacked indigenous street vendors and who profited from previous dictatorships. Morales also believes that there was resentment uh, amongst the educated classes that indigenous people could be doing politics better than the professionals. It is therefore Evo's opinion that the coup was motivated primarily by lithium, but also by racist resentment against indigenous people and anger at his left-wing economics, which by any measure were working for his country. As Vijay Prashad notes for Common Dreams, Bolivia had been sued by international corporations to the tune of $1.9 billion by 2014 over its nationalization of its resources. One of these companies was the Canadian Tri-Metals Mining, which was in the habit of taking indigenous Bolivian land. Another Canadian company, Pure Energy Minerals, along with Tesla, had been wanting to get a hold of the lithium, but they refused to make a deal in line with Bolivian requirements, who ended up signing contracts with China. Prashad also notes that after the coup, Tesla's stock rose astronomically. Discussing U.S. involvement in Latin America, Evo Morales told Glenn Greenwald that Bush, Obama, and Trump all speak about peace, but never about social justice. They speak of peace, but never about sovereignty or independence. And they speak of peace, but never of the dignity or identity of the people. He said that North American democracies... In North American democracies, it's neither the people nor the government who actually govern, but the transnational corporations who govern, no matter what party is in charge. He said, quote, the struggles and demands for change are going to continue because the capitalist system will never resolve the demands of the majority. Imperialism and the capitalist system is not a solution for life, for humanity, especially not for the new generations. That's why we're seeing these uprisings and rebellions right now. Who is with the people and who is with the empire? who is with the humble, the poor, and who sustains the economic power that places capital in a few hands. This is the profound debate we're having throughout the Americas. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, when, previously when we talked about the concept of, uh, you know, of this idea of, of sort of democracy being sort of the end-all, be-all of, of good, uh, I, I, in my head, I couldn't help but hear Bush's, you know, going, you know, let's go invade a place to spread democracy around the world. Mm. And, and, the, and the way in which there's a way in which that sort of framing has been, you know, the idea that we've set up these these democratic institutions against people's, you know, with the Indian Act and things like that feels, again, it, it's a, it, I think there's still the same thread of colonialism, I think, within within those actions, with the idea that we know better. And we will set up a democracy that will that will solve that will solve these things. Um, when when again when the when the, when the question in some ways has to always be the a democracy that serves who, um, and and this and this and this little bit about uh, about 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 the, the uh, and, and the, there's a very good article. I think we referenced it maybe 
four or five months ago, I'll have to go back and try to find it, that was sort of focusing on the idea of how important it is that a Green New Deal comes with a uh, with an internationalist lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and in how important it is that 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 uh, that it's not that it, that it doesn't stop at each, each country's borders and that it understands you know the way that these other things end up uh, impacting impacting the world around us and it's it really does it really does strike me as something that is that as as more and more of these you know the, the, as more and more of these things happen it, it, you do realize the sort of need for that 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 deeper look at, at how, at how we're structured. And, and it, it, it's a huge task. It's one of those things that is not just, you know, it's not just something, it's not just Canada, right? It's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, or, or it, it, it would be a big job to implement a Green New Deal in Canada. It's an even bigger job to understand what a, what, what the dismantling of the basic, you know, the current system exists across the world, uh, obviously is a even, even much larger task. Um, but I, I also do think it's not, you know, it, it's not so long ago that we did things differently. I think that's what strikes me is, is it's not so long ago that, that, that these were not all the cases, that, that, that were, there was a significant amount of, say, a local, localized manufacturing uh, that did occur. And, and I do, and so I, but there is this sort of larger um, tenant, basically. But curious, Emma, if you have, uh, if, again, not me on this particular story because we in no way prepped you for this particular story, <laughs> um, uh, but if in, if in some of your work and some of your researching, uh, if you have uh, come across some of these tensions that exist between, you know, between, between you know, the attempts to, what is, what is required, say, the, the minerals and the stuff that is required within, within these things um, and the, and the, like in the complicated f- nature between trying to actually change the world while you live in it, I guess. I don't know. It's like, I guess that's a sort of, it's a very wide ranging question. Um, and so it's, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm articulating correctly, but I, I, it, there is something about the fact that we are so, so wrapped up in this particular way of doing things that every time someone tries to get out of the way, it, it, the, the, the system does seem to react a little bit. And like, do you see us, do you see, progress in in sort of changing systems at all or are we keep referring back to sort of these types of things and this is more of a maybe a personal question than a reporter question (laughs) i think there's an element of like progress and pushback and progress and pushback if that makes sense like um one one thing that i i like do know a little bit about when it comes to bolivia is the implementation of undrip Hmm. um and in that case bolivia was like a world leader for a very long time now it looks like that's on the backslide. Um, but that also presents an opportunity, right? Um, my, my former colleague Stephanie Wood and I wrote about this, about how Canada can now, should it choose to, and it seems not to be choosing to, but should it choose to, it can step up and become a leader as well. Um, and like in some ways that seems to be what John Horgan is saying. He's saying, well, you know, after, after I eat this burger, I'm gonna go on a diet and we're gonna be like <laughs> a really big leader in, in this for sure. And I think that um, that can sound hard to believe yeah. for a lot of people. And so it does present an opportunity. I, I, maybe that's my hopeful framing, right. that, that progress is never linear on anything. Right. And maybe what comparing our, our relative cases shows us is... Um, is that is that there's, there is an... Op- what's interesting is that the passing does create a... Like, it will be interesting to see what happens next. You know, it will be interesting to see how much Horgan has to, 
like what what they what what steps they could possibly take to sort of regain you know as as, as Lauren referenced at the beginning of the show to regain that trust that they've lost you know that they've lost you know with if indigenous youth all across Canada are saying reconciliation is dead and it was killed by the the first government that input UNDRIP you know like there's a level of which that that is a uh, a terrifying irony um, but uh, but yeah it, it's it's something that we as Canada are going to have to reckon with really. Uh, but that is time uh, at the end of the show. Thank you for taking that poor question and turning it into a great answer, Emma. Uh, <laughs> we will be back next week uh, with the Green Majority once again. Thanks to you all so much. Have a great week, and we'll see you all real soon. Have a wonderful February 14th, everybody.